I welcome Wheatland family. This is not cross-reference with your host, Dan Spanger. This is, in fact, two pastors and a professor. And um, we are tackling concepts or topics that are relevant to the church and the life of the church and maybe things we're struggling with. Um, this, this podcast has, was conceived with the idea of creating a space for conversation. And I know we've been reiterating that, but just in case you didn't catch up with the last ones on gender, this is carrying on to the third recording on that topic. Uh, that this is an opportunity to hear uh, largely uh, Keith and pastors Keith and Luke sort of talk through this, ask questions, push and prod to give even the congregation a space to start thinking about how we relate to this biblically, Christianly, and in community in the church. So thank you, gentlemen. Um, I think I've said it before, but I'll say it again. These are difficult topics, and it would be easier if you all did not tackle these in a public space. I don't know. I don't know if <laughs> don't you thought of I that. I know it. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say what we're about to do is not wise, but thank you for doing it nonetheless. I, I don't know when something goes from courage into, I don't know what. <laughs> Sheer stupidity. <laughs> right. I'm not sure whether we cross the line here or not. Uh, I bet it'll be pretty clear. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that whoever's listening can read the double entendre. Just on the double comments, entendre. post uh, the minute mark at which we cross that <laughs> line. Cross, this, uh, this is the new contest for the yeah, weekend listeners. Exactly. We're going to take your bets on when this podcast crossed the line. So, gentlemen, we, we came out of the last conversation um, about sexuality in Genesis, and um, just as a bit of, just as a quick review, we're, we're trying to walk through these twin, very related, not, not meaning to pull them apart, but these twin concepts, one of sexuality that we're born in a biological state, and then this idea of gender, where your biological state, and I think, Keith, you used this phrase last time we were together, the experiences you have of that, so it's one thing to have the genitalia of a male or a female and all that biologically comes with it but then you actually you live that out and you experience it in certain ways and gender also comes with the idea that culture helps set those patterns for us they teach us here's what masculinity should look like and here's what femininity should look like and so those sexuality what you have gender how that's experienced in culture are obviously related but they are two different points of of um, of contest and it seems like the scriptures are fairly clear on the one. Sometimes we don't always feel we get a good scripture or biblical read on the second. Hmm. Um, but before we jump into that second one, uh, we want to go in and tie back into some ideas that we had coming out of that first one about what is sexuality. I'm, I don't, we could never, of course, solve everything or get at everything. But I think Luke and Keith, from our conversations, it felt like we, we didn't quite round out that conversation. There are a few more things to add into it. And I think, Luke, you were the one that after we got together after the second one, felt like maybe one thing we didn't clarify strongly enough was that the, the body as it is, is given as a, as a, as a sexualized thing. That body is, is also a gift or the phrase you used is the body from its creation is something that's meant to be loved. Mm -hmm. uh, is, is that, is that something you feel is so different than the way our culture seems to be approaching the body and its worth these days? Yeah, I think Dan, um, that in, in sort of sitting with I think our podcast has sort of provoked reflection on this for me in a deeper way, which is, I think, part of the helpfulness of this. But I think in sitting with um, brothers and sisters who are struggling in pastoral conversations and also sort of in being just a consumer of culture in, in the way that all of us are or um, affected by that, it it has really become clear to me that at least from a Christian perspective, that this is a really 
easily overlooked uh, anchor or or epistemological starting point, if you want to use that sort of language, which you probably don't, and nobody probably wants <laughs> like to. It. Okay, but uh, but I do think that this is one of those really quickly and easily overlooked starting points that is actually in the Genesis narrative uh, that the body is meant to be received as the pinnacle of creation, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the pinnacle of all that God does in creation, and therefore is to be received with this sacred uh, respect and love and welcome of it. And I think that's just a different place to start uh, the discussions of all of these things that we're talking about today. Yeah, that's, it's an interesting way to say yeah, that the body is meant to be loved. Uh, there's a book I found really helpful on sexuality called People to be Loved. And it's interesting just thinking about that title uh, and thinking about the body. Uh, our tendency is to think that we could love people without loving the body. Mm-hmm. But actually, um, those things are completely tied together. There's never, there's never been a person, there's, there's no such thing as a person without a body. And, mm-hmm. and we mentioned it before that the, yeah, the body is not a cage, um, but it, it, is, it is part of who we are. It is not sort of a property that our soul mm-hmm owns or something like that Mm. like that that to love people is to love is to love uh an embodied yeah is to love a body not just a body of course right but but to love to love someone is to love a body now that now if we if we're going to go down this road because i think we can say we can say the body is a gift you know if you're born with all of your limbs and everything functioning order and healthy you know I've, i've had i've really enjoyed by blessing really great health most all of my life Maybe that's not a hard thing. It's not a very attractive shell, I, I admit, but it's very functional. <laughs> it works pretty well compared to some others. So, so how do we say that? Because I think one of the things that's led into this, and I think, Keith, you make a great distinction there. The difference between the person and the body is hard. It's, it's easy to admit they're entirely joined when I feel like mine's a fairly good expression of the things I want to do and be. I want to be an athlete. It functions fairly okay that way. But when I want to do something, the body won't allow me either for disability reasons or um, all, all sorts of limitations that come. How, how do we see this body still as a gift? Because I think that, that gets really difficult mm-hmm. when, it, when it's not, it, it is, it, it's, it, there's, I think mm-hmm. there's reasons to see it, but yeah, it gets, and I, th- I think if I, if, and I think I said this in the last one, it's, it, I think it's our medical view of ourselves where disorders are different from us has really been a key, key driver mm-hmm. of all of this, yeah. where, where gender or our sexuality becomes another condition I have to live with because it doesn't serve almost, me the way I want it to serve me. Almost a diagnosis. In it's a, a diagnosis, sense. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. My face could be considered a diagnosis. Well, I think there's well. some insurance companies that would agree <laughs> with that, actually. Yeah. yeah, I'd really love to, this is a question that I, I mean, with people in my family who, who uh, yeah. struggle with, who have disability, I, that's a question I've never asked them um, because I probably wasn't, haven't been theologically thoughtful enough in my relationships to ask to talk to my dad who is unbelievably theologically thoughtful uh, and to talk to my brother who's recently now been struggling with disability. I've never asked, what is it like for you? What is it, how, how have you, how do you experience uh, your body in the sense of 
what's it look like for you to recognize that your body is still a gift? Um, I know, I know when I taught a, a class on disability two years ago, um, we talked about different views, different ways to think of disability and like our broken bodies. Um, and that we made the argument that the biblical view, this is coming from someone else, is that um, it's a normal part of our abnormal world. Mm. And that our world is abnormal in the sense that it's broken. So we should expect uh, different things to be broken in our lives. Um, but I think that's a really good question that I don't have an answer for. And I probably don't have an answer for because I don't know if I'm qualified to answer it in one sense <laughs> because I've never struggled with it. But I've also not been uh, relationally thoughtful enough to ask others, uh, what does it look like to have a body who that you have experienced its particular brokenness? And maybe that's not a disability. Maybe it's, maybe it's just certain illness you've struggled with your entire life. Um, uh, I, I don't think I've asked that question in the ways that I, that I should be of people. Yeah, I was thinking about, <clears throat> as you all are talking, I think that is a really poignant and an important question to ask and, and, and to wrestle with. But I think maybe one step up from that question, which I think we can all sort of grant is no matter what place you're coming from in this discussion, what you can expect is a struggle to love, like this is a, since the fall, mm -hmm. this has been a point of struggle for humanity and in, in different people, it manifests itself differently. Um, but that struggle to really embrace the body in whatever form it's given in whatever place that it's um, been affected by the fall or by, uh, you know, and there's, of course, the other side of this is not disability, but um, abuse and, and the marks that, yeah. let's say, sexual abuse or so something leave on our brothers and sisters and, and have these ramifications out into all of their other relationships where it's just, I, I have friends who um, were sexually abused as children. They carry that into their marriage and uh, they've expressed just anger at the way their spouse um, has to live with that as well yeah. in, in their own relationships. I mean, these things have far reaching ramifications, but all I'm trying to point out is I think that this is always a uniquely uh, human struggle since the fall um, to wrestle through these things. And so we, we, ought not to be surprised at it, but we ought to maybe re-engage the struggle with a, with sort of this givenness as well, that this is, this is part of what it means to be human now. It doesn't, in one sense, at least if we're, if we're taking where we've come from through Genesis seriously, we have to say with the struggle that may be real, the answer is not to separate personhood and body. Mm. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Cause I, and I, and I mean, yeah. and this gets really, can get murky quickly. Like if you have a disorder and you can overcome it, um, this this in the deaf community has become a really intriguing problem. Yeah, deafness defines you. Should you mm -hmm. get your deafness healed, then you become a different person. 
Right. You know, I mean, I, I, guess, I don't think there's a, um, a formula here, an algorithm that gets this solved, but mm -mm. it seems like, and, and I don't know, gentlemen, if this is the right thing we can land on or if this handles it all. However, we handle that, we ought not accept the separation of our personhood and personality from our body as the solution to that problem. Is that? Mm -hmm. Yes. I, yeah, that's the big category that disembodiment, um, the, that uh, inclination towards solving problems through disembodiment seems to at, at in the scriptures for sure but then just sort of like in the world in, in in history solving problems by disassociating and disembodiment do not actually solve the mm. problem mm -hmm. yeah it's it's interesting how our all of our tendencies is to yeah is to distance ourselves or yeah disconnect from a body and try to treat it like something else and other than rather than uh going to the going in prayer to the voice of god and and asking him to 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 shape our view of ourselves i mean even think as your kids grow up and and their bodies are continually changing and they're trying to deal with that and interact with that and like oh now what do i think like it keeps affecting their view of themselves. And so there's this obvious built-in thing that our body is part of who we are as people because as our body changes, it affects the way that we think about ourselves. Mm -hmm. So there's this thing right in front of us that shows us this is part of who you are. It isn't just a cage because if it was just a cage, it wouldn't affect, it wouldn't affect your view of yourself. Uh, but because it's part of you, it, it affects our view of ourselves sometimes in negative ways and sometimes in positive ways. Um, but whether that it's interacting with us positively or negatively, what we must continue to do is to be prayerfully asking God, like, how, what does it look like for me to care for my body, love my body, and use this body that you've given me for your glory and moving your mission forward? And in some, in some sense, some way, and I, again, this gets really hard to do, but it seems like to, to own it as part of you. Um, mm. I, and I, I think as a, as, a, as a historian, it seems like this is a poignant, not that it, I think you're, you're right, Luke, it's always been a problem. You can see that scripturally and historically, it always has been. Even Jesus is very aware of this. When he cares for people, he heals them. He doesn't say you are blind. He says blindness mm -hmm. is a condition. Um, but at the same time, it seems like it's particularly poignant now because we have the capacity to impact the body so deeply to be aware. I was just talking with a friend about this, this you know, sort of COVID and flu, and it's it's interesting, we're afraid of what we know now. The more we know, the more fear we get. And so you can go down to the DNA and go, oh, that DNA piece, we could actually tweak, which means it's no longer essential. It's just it's anything that can be changed is an accidental quality. So mm. if I can change your gender before you're born, if I can mm. change this, then that's not really you. And, and so that the you-ness or me-ness is starting to get cabinetized, right? Mm -hmm. Compartmentalized down to this one little feature of, I don't know what, and Keith, you make a good point. What are we left with is what, what I want, in the moment, is that who mm -hmm. I am? And so I wanted mm -hmm. to be a girl yesterday. I want to be a boy tomorrow. Is that the essence of me? Once it becomes disembodied, it's almost impossible to locate. But on the opposite side, we don't want to identify ourselves with every one of our disorders and problems. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd like to think I'm not a balding man, but a man going bald. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, maybe again, there's no way to navigate, but we have to navigate that somehow so that we don't make the mistake of disembodying ourselves, but at the same time, not simply accepting the failures of our flesh as somehow that's all I'm reduced to yeah. navigating that space somehow. I don't know how to do that.
Yeah. Well, that's why we're having this podcast, oh, Dan. You're supposed to explain <laughs> exactly. And I we're supposed you, to I affirm you your don't understand the order of our title. Yeah, exactly. It's too <laughs> right. Well, let I, me go to something, Luke, you said. And I, I, you, you said this in a conversation we had, and it's, it's sticking with me as probably one of the most important pieces to add back to the conversation. I don't know if this solves everything. Mm-hmm. Wait, you but, mean something that I said isn't the most important piece, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> That'll be later in the conversation, uh, Keith. Right man. now is what Luke is oh, saying. Oh, well, I'm going to log understand, off. people, that I'm a bit of a parent here. I've got to keep these two yeah. fighting. I'll leave, street, the rest, I'll leave the rest of this to you two. I'll go on mute <laughs> since everything that I said. In the Zoom call, I'm right in between the two of them. That's the whole thing. No, but I, you you make that you made this comment, Luke, and I think I think somehow in here, and I don't know exactly how, and we'll tease this out in our conversational yeah. here, is that that concept being added in seems to be a real help. I don't know if it teaches us how to handle all the problems, but it seems like in the modern view, if we look at the way we're looking now, we we tend to see our bodies as an accident, mm-hmm. as a biological thing. They, you know, mom and dad, particularly those people and their DNA and the and the way that the sex act happened, whatever the sperm, I ended up with this thing, which seems accidental. But you yeah. said something in our conversation, I think you were reading Nancy Percy at the time, to say right, right. what we have not added to that conversation is not just the causalities that lead to us, which can be seen as somewhat accidental, but mm-hmm. that whatever we're given actually has an ultimate end or purpose or telos mm-hmm. that then allows us to re-see what we are as purposeful right? because it's headed towards an actual target or end, and that's its main purpose, not its causality right. i don't know if that's exactly what you were getting at with the percy comment yeah i think it is and i think in some ways i'm still grasping at all of the implications of that yeah. in a yeah. sense i think there's like a lot of things that flow out of that idea that the body um has not just a like you put it accidental and now you deal with that and you embrace it but that the body, uh, the human body that we are given as gift actually has a goal and a telos and that it means something definitive. Uh, I, I found that sentence in Nancy Percy, Piercy probably is how you say it. I Piercy. would say Percy. I, I don't know why. Yeah. I said that. Okay. Well, well, maybe she'll call in at the end and set us straight. <laughs> uh, of a show. I'm sure she's listening. Should, I, after we get done with her, I bet the least of her concerns will be how we pronounced her last name, but how we butchered what she had actually said. But anyway, um, she says, if nature is teleological and the human body is part of nature, then it is likewise teleological. Mm. And I thought that was that it, it, the body itself has a built in purpose. And I think that that was really helpful for me because, you know, we'd just been sitting with the Genesis narrative right, right. and that the body is a part of that, the, the creation of the human body and, and the giftedness of it that we talked about maybe on our last podcast is part of that whole um, creation narrative. And it comes at a certain place in the order and it comes mm-hmm. as the high point of creation and it's after that that everything becomes behold it was very good in 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 god's um uh sort of summing up what he has Mm. just done so so for me that just began to spin the wheels in my brain to say okay so not only is it just this amazing gift but somehow the body sits at the human body sits at the crown of all of creation as 
the place where all of creation was always going like the tell i mean it, it the right. body itself is sort of the crowning point and the telos of creation and it becomes a telos of even greater uh so again i'm just sort of spinning off there into these other places but i do think that has implications for the conversation that we're having today as well um because as i said it becomes this tether point to go back and say oh okay the body is more than just part of what it means to be a person it itself uh has an inbuilt purpose that speaks to who I am as one whole being, and that can't be denied. Mm. So that's why. Anyway, that's why, that's why I think it's this idea that um, there's a kid's book that we have at our house. I should have brought it because it'd probably be more thoughtful than even me, even though it's for little kids. But it's called uh, "God Made You, Boy and Girl" or something like that by Marty Mikowski. It's in the subtitle. It's God's Gift of Gender, and I, I just I love the idea that our sex is a gift of God, because like you mentioned, Dan, like without that understanding of God's involvement and his goodness and his sovereignty and working over everyone's birth, where you end up being a male or female, if you just see it as, well, there were two X's here, there was an X and a Y here, and you know, however I came out, that's how I came out, then if, if God's not involved in that, then of, then of course you might think, oh, I, could, I should be able to change that. I should be able to be able to change from being male or female. Like, like why not if God's not involved in this, in this? If it is just merely an accident, an accidental event or uh, a random event. But if this is God's good gift to us, then, then now, now it does, it shapes, oh, like, I've been given an opportunity, me, to live as a man in the world. And so that, that's, that is the gift given to me. And now I get to go and, and live that way in this particular body as a man. And seeing that as an opportunity, like a gift from God, and now as an opportunity to live in gratitude and thankfulness to God, I think it's very different than me seeing, oh, it happened to turn out this way when I was born. Yeah, and I, I, I think there's, I, and I, and since you said that, Luke, and, and I know it was Nancy Percy, um, <laughs> as I would think, that, that gives us that concept. But I, I think that's such an important piece to add back in, because you, you would, and I say this uh, in other contexts, but if you're reading a story and you, you read a book or a novel and you stop two thirds of the way through and then just put it up and put it away, none of the characters ultimately make sense. And I think a lot of what we're asking to do in our culture mm -hmm is to define the entire story by page 26. This, this mm -hmm. is, you're living in page 26 and you've got to conclude mm -hmm. all the parts mm -hmm. of your life in that story. Mm -hmm. But God increasingly, and we're just reading John Calvin with our, our Calvin group, where Calvin says, if you do not have a view of the eternal, then there's no sense to be made of the story. And, and I, I think there, mm -hmm. there's where we as Christians have something to add to say, I know this feels uncomfortable and your body makes no sense. That's because you don't have the whole story yet. Mm -hmm. And that sounds flippant, but it's not. I, this might be if, if people are struggling with the concept of telos here might be an example the the poor submarine that was built in iowa is an interesting concept because you mm -hmm. have the submarine that looks unlike all the other cars and it it doesn't seem to fit anywhere um through the entire trek but then once it hits the ocean it becomes mm -hmm. clear oh that's why you're shaped that <laughs> way right <laughs> and then in the water you do things that a car can't 
But mm-hmm. and I and I wonder if you know our lives are told between Iowa and maybe Ohio, and we mm-hmm. die. Mm-hmm. But the story is God's eternal story. So we don't even know yet why God mm-hmm. made you the way he made you, because quite frankly, he's not telling a temporal story. Mm-hmm. And he's not telling a story that may end with you at the age of 60, right. 70, 80, or 90. Mm-hmm. The story has eternal right. narrative to go yet. Right. Um, yeah. And does that give us space to accept yeah. what appears broken and totally out of place because right. of the submarine in, in, in Iowa? Yeah. I just and don't I, get it. Yeah, and I think what we can all embrace is that Ohio is a wasteland. And that's no, that's <laughs> not what you're see. saying. All my dear uh, Buckeye friends, that is, that is not what we're saying. But Dan, I think that um, that's the idea of telos that I think we really have to embrace yeah. is it's not just that your body uh, has a built in purpose, but that that's what we're really struggling with in general is that there actually is a coastline or (laughs) there is an ocean or there is a telos to which all of this is moving. And I think that's, that's part of the Christian story that you almost have to give away if you come back to, to redefine and uh, what it means to be a, biologically male or female so in other words what you're saying is there's a lot more you're giving away when you you're 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 giving away a whole telos you're giving away a whole destination so like if in ohio you decide to add wheels and (laughs) that sort of thing you not only have you changed the vehicle itself but you've you've disallowed that there is something further out that's yeah, and really I, and I, interesting. And I think, yeah, and I don't think we, you know, Paul doesn't seem to say that if you make a mistake, you're not finally complete in Christ. But no, but nonetheless, if you, and I think this is where this is, this is really helpful is that to say, do you evaluate your purpose, meaning, and value in that longer trajectory, mm-hmm. or are you constantly looking really at the next two pages and going, this this story has to get cinched in the next two pages, and then I want to live that way for the rest of the book is just to say that we become the storytellers and that's not the way this goes. And I think you see this in scripture, you know, Paul, uh, Jesus makes this point when the tower of Siloam falls in, why did the tower fall on those people? Was it their sin or someone else? It was neither. This was, this was so the, the glory of God could be seen. You, you're missing this whole point. And it's not about how can I avoid towers in the future? The question is, what is God doing with falling towers? <laughs> that's mm. like the other way this gets looked at. I don't know yeah. how that plays out into practical things, but right. it seems like that's not part of our conversation when we think through Right. And yeah, that's, it's just, I think what we're pointing out is that the ramifications of this have far, far reaching effects. And that the way that we think about our bodies um, is not, does say something about what we grasp of the future, Mm. a future that we may not actually be able to see it from this point yeah and then whether or not and i think you know this comes down to probably the architectural piece of this for christians is faith mm. and not you know and, and a willingness to not know but to obey a willingness yeah. to not fully yeah. understand but to follow and you know there's a there's a there's a piece that comes with that i know in parenting you know there's if i have to explain everything to a five-year-old it's not going to help either of us. You're going to be frustrated because you don't understand what epistemology and psychology mean. And I'm going to be frustrated because I can't get it across to you. 
But right. when a child realizes their only chance at this point is to obey, at least that struggle ends and there's some peace inside. Okay, I trust dad. I guess I don't know what the heck you're talking about, but I'll do what you say. Mm-hmm. And then you don't get run over by the car because you don't run out into the road. But how much of that is our experience that this comes down to a really, this goes to what I think both of you are dealing with and you're sermonizing, which is waiting. The awfulness of that, the pain of it is not unredeemed. It's not wasted. It's not whatever you struggle with in our bodies is not wasted by God. It's it's part of his glorious plan. We just can't. I'm just reading Harry Blameyers. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him, yeah. um, um, the Christian mind. But he says, you know, if we don't see our lives as part of a massive cosmic story of God's work and demons and this and their animosity and that whole massive heavenly story, then we've lost what it means to even think Christianly to begin with. And mm. I think what yeah. you say by telos, boy, just helps us relocate this whole conversation back mm-hmm. in that rather than trying to solve it inside and, the half a book we only have. And I think, Dan, like I wasn't expecting to go in this direction on the podcast, but it, it, the telos has to do with our task as well. Like mm. Adam and Eve, are given a task in the world. Yeah. And I, it's just interesting. I don't know what more to say about that, but I think the, the bodies that uh, they're given are deeply and intimately connected to the task that they're given as well. And so, yeah, I, I don't know exactly all of the things that flow out of that, but all of this has to hang together in a right. sense, or it begins to disintegrate. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think even when we get to our conversation in gender, I think the question has to be, is the Christian asking, what is God doing with this? Or, or what do I want out of it? And sometimes those two things agree. And sometimes, quite frankly, they just don't agree. And, yeah. and we've, we've talked about this in other ways that I think sometimes in the modern culture, we're hoping to find a way to do this so the struggle stops but it doesn't seem to be yeah. a biblical expectation that the struggle mm-hmm. stops. I mean, you, yeah. you've used, and we use it in gender, but I want to bring it back to this, Luke, if that's okay. Yeah. You brought up in our conversation about this, that if you think of life as navigating, then it's, it's, it's never something that you really just click into a button and then just mm. coast to your target. Right. It's right. this constant. And, I, and I'm going to allow space here. So Keith, I deeply apologize for this, but yeah. I'm going to allow Luke to do this, to use a failing <laughs> metaphor to make this point nautical nautical metaphor. i'm sorry nautical. Yes. We don't yeah. We're i don't want to limit it to sailing it could be uh with an outboard and okay. motor <laughs> and a diesel inboard is fine too um but yeah dan you and i got talking about this and sort of thinking about if if you're setting a course whether it's nautical or aeronautical right. um right. as i know your love is um that is the position, the destination is fixed, but the path right. by, by which you get there is not a fixed path. It's mm. the destination itself that's fixed. Mm. And mm. you in, in navigating towards that fixed point are subject to all sorts of conditions uh, mm. that you can't anticipate for, um, but that you have to course correct towards. So if um all right i we we talked about the danger of stretching this analogy thin. i think you're there's allowance here because we need a little bit more yeah so, okay so, so right so if i have set uh on uh the gps unit on my vessel um 
the fixed point of the Baltimore Canyon, which is about 72 miles off the beachfront in um, out of Indian River, Delaware, if I set that as my waypoint, my fixed point of navigation, that that is not changing. But there are tides, there are winds, there are all sorts of things that affect my actual route getting there. Mm. And so like, you might think the real work is just setting your destination. That's not actually the real work. The real work is keeping the boat on course the entire time. And, and um, anyway, I, yeah, I'll quit stretching the analogy, but you have to compensate at each and every moment almost for tides and wind and, and all sorts of varying um, things that come up as you head toward this fixed point. And I feel like that's what this conversation yeah. is a lot for us, just pastorally. We're always correcting and 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 re reevaluating where we're at at this moment in relation to that fixed point. And there are new discussions that are coming up. There are new things that are brought up in our new culture headwinds. from society, new, new headwinds. Yeah. New currents, and new. Especially as we get into this idea of of later on, maybe in our discussion about ideas of gender and how those uh, are enculturated and, and how um, different cultures and different uh, time periods have different ideas about what it means to be male and female and all of that. And you're always, but that doesn't change uh, our, 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 our waypoint or our desk, maybe waypoint isn't the right word, but our, 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 our destination point. Right. Yeah. And that, and I, here, I mean, that, I find this that metaphor really helpful when when you brought it up. Again, Keith, you also said good things. I want everyone to know that. But in this case, <laughs> again, another another Luke metaphor. But but do I the, get two check marks here on the uh, on the that's uh, between you and Keith? I, I, don't, I don't know that <laughs> contest. Um, but be, but because the experience and Keith, this is I'll go back to something you said about gender: is how do we experience our sexuality? And I think there's a there's been a tendency in the church to say. There's one way to experience your sexuality. And once you lock onto that, you'll be happy. And we've seen this happen in the church around marriage and sex, right? And if you don't have sex with anyone else, by the time you're married, it'll be the most wonderful experience ever. And we all know sex is not that simple for anyone. Mm -hmm. But we but we said that, like, there's one way to do this. And once you lock in your navigation, mm -hmm. you can just, you'll just do a manliness that way and womanliness that way, and everything will be happy, which was, uh, it was a lie. I mean, it was a lie, but it was false. Yeah. Because right. what you're saying in the metaphor, and Keith, this goes back to experiencing sexuality, is it's not something you ever just sort of settle into. It's something that always takes correction, not only because your experience changes, but the cultural values change around you and they push you this way. Then your self-identity changes because you start to buy in or know some of those things or because you go through a bad experience with abuse. Mm -hmm. or So it's like the idea of correction in navigation seems so important to me because the experience you probably should feel is that. You probably mm -hmm. shouldn't feel you've locked into the target mm. and I just live it out. No one questions yeah. whether I'm living my sexuality, right? I obviously am. Yeah. No, that's mm -hmm. the, none of us do it that way. And I, and I, I know Keith, you would mention with gender, if it's, it's the way we experience our sexuality, whether or not that metaphor gives us the space to say, this is always going to be a struggle. It's always going to be work. It's always going to be adjustment. It's never going to be autopilot. Which, by the way, that is in an air, in airplane, and I don't have one. So yeah, <laughs> they also have that on. Oh, do that. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. But but all it means is the autopilot is doing the correcting right. for you. Right. You don't. You're not Someone's doing it doing manually. It right. Somebody's doing the Fair correcting. Enough. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I think it's it's really hard to 
think about how me being male specifically affects the way that I follow Christ, aside from in my marriage, um, because being male specifically uh, affects that. But just generally as a disciple, I think like the, the end point that we're moving towards is continued faithfulness and being more and more like Christ. And if somebody says, well, how, how do I do that as a man? I think my first response is just do it. Uh, just, just, just read the scriptures and seek to be faithful by the work of the Holy Spirit to, to the fruits of the Spirit and to the Sermon on the Mount. Be faithful to these things. And as you do that as a male or as a female, you are being a faithful male or being a faithful female. That I, I don't want so quickly for us to jump. And I think this is where we get into trouble because we jump so quickly to, oh, what are the different ways that as a man, I do this, and the, or, the, or the prescribed ways as a man that I do this, and the prescribed ways as a female do I do this. And I think it's, the, for me, the starting point is faithfulness as a Christian. And as you live that out as a man or a woman, you are now, you are, you are now being faithful to, to the body and soul that you've been given by God, whether it's male or female. Well, let me let me use a let me go back to Luke's overly stretched nautical metaphor here. <laughs> see if I can stretch it just a little further because I see your point that you know faithfulness will bear the fruit. It's not you know you've decided I'm going to do it this way and that's what bears the fruit. It's the increase, increasing faithfulness. But it, if we go back to the this issue of gender that we've got the sexual body we've been given and then we live that body out in certain ways and once you once you step out of the factory floor, you know into the water or onto the street, wherever. Now all these forces start playing on how that thing moves and lives. And so gender becomes something that's really hard to navigate because there's no clear points. I mean, we've got Luke's given us a destination of eternity, which is the right one. But the waypoints, if we go back to the other one, Luke, mm -hmm. like what's the waypoint to know that I'm mm -hmm. headed in that direction is really tricky because the influences telling us how to live out our sexuality are themselves also floating, right? So Luke, and this, this is where I, I, I would find this and I could do this in flying too. If I, mm -hmm. if I choose to navigate by the plane next to me, that's mm -hmm. not a helpful model. Right. So if I say, how do I live this out? Well, I'm going right. to keep that boat in, in focus. Then we're both wandering right. around in the ocean together. Yeah. And the culture yeah. doesn't, the, every culture we live in, the ancient culture, the one we're in now has right. a view of how to live this out, which is not necessarily anchored in something eternal. And right. that's probably the thing that's affecting us most as we start mm -hmm. to make decisions. So I see your point, Keith. I, I do wonder, though, how do we make decisions day by day when faithfulness is defined by our culture one way, defined by my family another way, defined mm -hmm. by my elders another way in the TV yeah. shows I watch and all that sort of thing. Right. I think I think this uh, navigational thing, I, I'm, I'm ready to stretch it to another level now because <laughs> it reminds me, I'm assuming uh, I've been on my boat with a pilot who... Uh, who act, so actually now, Dan, you get some superiority because All this right. pilot uh, said, hey, you don't have to look down at your um, little line that's headed towards your, um, your actual destination right. all the time. You can, he said, I fly by clouds all the time. Um, yeah, and yeah. so you don't have to pick just stare at, yeah, you pick one and that's in that line right. and then you, you flood it. So but okay, so that works for a little while, <laughs> and then but right. 
as the clouds are moving and as you're moving, you, you do ultimately have to reference. So I think that's a really interesting idea is that we can set uh, our courses for a little bit, for a time, as long as they line up with our ultimate destination. Right. Right. That is that is our fixed point. We can use some cultural um, waypoints as as navigation points, but we can never ultimately trust them as mm. as. So, if you're talking about um, if we're talking about gender for a moment, um, maybe there are places where you can take the cultural expressions of gender and sort of use them to navigate for a time because they just happen to be in that moment lined up with the ultimate waypoint. Mm -hmm. But there will be a time because of course, or because of wind or whatever that they move off and you'll have to move off of that waypoint that you were using that, that cloud in a sense, and you'll have to recorrect based on a thing. And I think, I think this is a good analogy for how we've thought about politics as well. Um, and I, we don't need to extrapolate into that, but you know, sometimes this policy lines up with an ultimate waypoint or our ultimate destination. And so mm-hmm. we're navigating by that for a while, but then it moves off or anyway. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's sort of a helpful way to understand that in this discussion of gender and sexuality, there are times when cultural norms and cultural expectations may line up with ultimate things, but they're not ultimate themselves. They're, right. they're moving and they're shifting. And that's when we have to go and look. And yeah, I may yeah. have stretched this too. No, I don't, I don't think so. Cause I think it goes back to the, the experience of this is that is if, if, if it is a thing you feel like you're always having to correct, then you're probably doing the right thing. Right. That's I think when I've taken people flying um, and say, here, you can you can take over what and one buddy said this. I was funny. He said when I when I was flying is I'm looking out of the airplane and I'm sort of enjoying the day. And so then I, I chose to look down and realize your hands are you your hands never stop. Like the planes going along this. Oh, various pet, but your, your hands are up and down, up and down, left and mm-hmm. right. Up and down. Mm-hmm. Constant correction, constant airspeed correction, constant direction yeah. correction. Yeah. And, and you can say, well, you're not flying right because you're so busy. No, actually, that's that's the right way this has to get done. And I and I wonder if if what our culture seems to say to us is find a rest in in identifying yourself this way and living genderedly this way. And don't let anybody shake you out of it. You know, there's a lot of this. You do you and you be who you want to be. And we talked a little bit about finding your identity and our desires, which we can become very settled in and go good. Now I know it. It might be that when you settled into this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do. You're, you're probably now have chosen a moving object by which to navigate. Hmm. And it feels like, and, and I, I, I get that. I, you know, flying navigation, I'll pick a tree out in the distance that keeps me on my line or mountain mm-hmm. or whatever. But once I overfly it, I can't circle back to it. <laughs> right. I'll never, I'll never get anywhere. Yeah. Um, there... But to recognize that, yeah, the feeling is you're going to wrestle with this. And the feeling is it's constant course changes mm-hmm. maybe even knowing that that's the normal way we experience this is a is a, mm-hmm. is a good thing to know because the culture right. is something very different yeah yeah i i think well i'll, I'll try to give a specific example uh yeah. which can all we need get we need something yeah, we're specific a little too theoretical here. Here. Yeah. yeah i know but then specific examples get people in trouble sometimes yeah. so well, as long as it's you getting in trouble yeah encouraging. yeah that's <laughs> sure i'll go back to muting myself don't worry keith this isn't being um, recorded <laughs> yeah. So, so in the scriptures, 
we see it from the very beginning with Adam that there is there is a sense uh, there is a responsibility given to Adam in his marriage that he is responsible. Uh, so Eve eats the fruit, Adam eats the fruit, Adam is responsible. There, there is some something in, in the way that God has set it up. Adam's, Adam is made first, Adam is ultimately responsible. You see it in the way that Ab now, we, now we're waiting with Abraham in Advent, you see it in the way, and that's treated like God keeps coming to Abraham. Abraham is responsible for these failures uh, to wait. And so, so I think that, that that's true in, in my marriage. I think Ephesians 5 points at that, that I, as husband, am, I, I have this responsibility. Uh, things fall back to me. Um, and I think that's, that's good. And I think that's culturally good. I think it, that if, if culture pushes for me to have a responsibility in my marriage, I think that's good and helpful. I think where I need to, where we would need to course correct is if, because I have that responsibility, now I am the one that makes all the decisions. I am the one that is telling everyone what to do. And if I'm responsible, that means I am now the boss. And I don't think that the responsibility equals boss. And so for me, I think culturally, uh, I mean, if I just think of American culture in the last 50, 70, 80, 100 years, whatever, um, there's, there's been an understanding of marriage. And I think sometimes in there, there was a men were responsible in the marriage, not even just meet in the church, I think broadly in culture, but so, when, when it's aired, it's aired on this, oh, that means men are the boss and men get to decide when they can just sit there and not be helpful. And men get to decide when they're just going to step in and make decisions. You're not talking about the dishes, are you Keith? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It sounds and like so, you're talking about the dishes. Yeah. So like I, so for me, that's a place where I, I think I look at this and think, all right, well, when do I live in this? And when, when do we have to look at the scriptures and say, whoa, there's a course correction here that's needed. That right. responsibility, that's true. I am responsible. I'm responsible for my family and, and my children. Uh, but it doesn't mean I walk around and I'm the boss and everybody treads lightly uh, when dad walks into the room because we don't know what decision he's going to make. not Archie Bunker. He's going to send us. No, I'm not. I'm not. Not at all. Pity. <laughs> well, so so that's that's a good point, and I don't I don't know if I mean Scripture seems to hold up some sort of a target that helps us by referring to God and His Church in gendered ways, God and His people in gendered ways, Christ in the Church in gendered ways, Christ is the lover of the Church, the Church is the one that respects Christ, and so and it doesn't, and I guess you can get this stuff really specific, but is that is that enough of a target to help us course correct? Because Keith, I think that's what Paul even anchors it in is not, look, I think this is, makes really good sense in the Roman world, which by the way, it did not, um, mm -hmm. you know, loving your wife was not something that made a whole lot of sense in the Roman mm -hmm. world. Yeah. Um, but even the authority of the husband, which is real in Paul is not the kind of authority Romans would have recognized in any way, mm -hmm. but it seems like Paul takes this really crazy thing of going, here's what the culture and all the winds and the currents say, but I'm looking at this one fixed point called Christ in his church. Mm -hmm. And I don't see that relation now. He, he localizes that in marriage. But are we saying here that there are some gender norms that are built into the relationship between Christ and his church that extend out into the way that men and women ought to relate to one another? And I know that's a loaded question and putting us mm -hmm. all on the spot here, but and we can say no. Well, I, I don't know what the right answer is. But. Let me duck the question by Excellent. making an observation. <laughs> no, I'll come back to it. But I, I want to remind us that the church is Christ's body. And this, this to me connects really intimately to 
the discussion that we started this whole podcast with is that the church is Christ's body in the world. And that, that idea of, I, I think one of the things, one of the mistakes that I think the church has often made is dealing lightly with that metaphor. And I think that's what you're getting at essentially too here, Dan, is that Christ as the head and the church as his body is a real relationship that is being given to us, not just, not just a relation, not just a, a metaphor um, that tries to help us make sense, but that is a real union and communion between head and body. And uh, I think that's interesting uh, to, to circle back to what it means to love your body and to embrace body and all of that. I think going back to that, that has implications then for this discussion about Christ and the church or Christ and his body as well. Well, doesn't, I don't mean to jump in here. That's a great point. Doesn't Paul actually say that? Mm. You, you, no one, no one doesn't love their own body. And he uses that as a metaphor for how kind of husband mm -hmm. ought to relate to their wives. But mm -hmm. I don't know that Paul is just in his mind thinking, I'm only thinking of one social relationship. I think he's probably thinking in larger terms, mm -hmm. something in that is a pattern set for how men need to view themselves and women to view themselves. Mm -hmm. Both are essential to the survival and identity mm -hmm. of humanity, but mm -hmm. each one plays this different part in it. It is keeping the relationship of Christ and his church as the primary relationship, not the relationship of man and women in marriage as primary. So in other words, um, we think about marriage through the relationship of Christ and his church. We don't think about the relationship of Christ and his right, church right, through, through the eyes of marriage. And yeah, I think yeah, yeah. that's sort of what you're saying is that's the fixed waypoint. Now, this other one is a really important navigational aid in a sense. Mm -hmm. But if, if you're not thinking about Christian marriage through the eyes of Christ and his body in the world, then you're going to somehow, somewhere fall off mm. of the ultimate destination. And Keith, I want to go to something that you had mentioned as a key point in our conversation. So I want to make sure we hit it. And, and, and this may go into what you were raising of let's get practical for a minute. Maybe one of the practical things is understanding what the target is or what that, and so we can realize when we've navigated too far off it, not that again, in this constant correction, we're ever going to nail the path down perfectly, but we realize, mm, I think we've gotten off. Let's come back and correct this somewhat. Is the other one that we need to, to, to have as a corrective is this idea that when Christ comes for the church, he doesn't come to people that in a sense are, they are less, he's divine, but then he's coming to love his people as their brother, as their, as their elder brother, he's coming to love people that he actually sees on a par in some way. And, and, and could that mean that when we start to treat someone because of their office or station or gendered place in society as less than, mm. as not essentially the same human, as not important, that somehow we've, we've, we've overly course corrected, or we, we haven't course corrected, we've, we've chased the wrong point off the, off the horizon. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. I, I think it seems like the the, the guiding, uh, the guiding label is not the right term, but the guiding role that we're all given as as Christians is brothers and sisters, yeah. and so it's like that that is the thing that is true of all of us as God's people. Jesus is the faithful brother, and now we are brothers and sisters 
of Christ and brothers and sisters of one another. And that right in there, so built in to that of, of who we are as brothers and sisters and all calling God our Father is, is an equality, is an equal worth and equal value. Hmm. And that starts at, at being as image bearers, but then it's reinforced, like you're saying, when Jesus, this is reinforced and, and even maybe made more specific when Jesus comes and, and is our faithful brother. And now we get to call God Father. We're invited into this triune relationship. Like you're saying, not because we become divine in some way, but now this, this invitation is extended to, to humanity to come and enter in to this loving fellowship of the triune God. Now we call God Father, and we are our brothers and sisters of Jesus. And so if anything that we do, uh, as we, any roles that we're given to each other or anything that we do in life is pushing back against that, or yeah, is pushing back against that or contradicting that reality, then that's when we know, oh, we need a course correction here. Because if we're, if we are now treating people uh, as though they have some sort of different value or worth, because that, now that's, oh, course correction. Uh, now we need to shift back because we're not moving in towards the telos. Now, that, now this raises a really important difficulty and struggle, I think, for people in this day and age that probably wouldn't have wrestled with 80, 100, go back years ago, is that the perception, it seems, in culture nowadays is that if you are out of power or under someone else's, you, you do not have the same essential worth. And that, that mm -hmm. you know, say, well, and I can see people saying, oh, if, if I'm under someone else's authority and power, that, that needs to be course correct because now I'm not essential and I don't have the same worth. It seems in scripture that those two things are not the same. It seems mm -hmm. like power and authority do not challenge worth and value the way that our modern culture is asking us to. Mm -hmm. So I think of, of, you know, we, the church obeys Christ. And I think you're right. Brother and sister is the guiding metaphor. It seems to be all through the new Testament. At the same time, we are called to obey Christ and be a slave to Christ, but that authority structure doesn't seem to diminish our value. In fact, Oddly enough, it seems to raise our value. It seems to prove our essential worth to him is that we actually are his people under his authority. And I, I wonder if, if, if one of the course corrections also could be, keeping the metaphor going here, the course correction could be when we decide to use these terms in ways that the Bible doesn't, then as uncomfortable as it may be, we may have to correct back and say, it's okay for a child to be under the authority and power of the parents with discipline but doesn't mean that that child is any less worth to God and as a human being, just because they're under that discipline, which I think is what Paul's getting at in Romans 13 in government. That's something that I think the early church was really wrestling with in the mm -hmm. marital relationship in lots of different ways. Our culture has decided power eliminates worth and value. And it doesn't seem that's a biblical concept. I almost have to redeem that somehow so that we are in line with what the scriptures are carrying. Yeah. I was thinking, I think about that. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned like being a slave to Christ because this idea uh, of being a slave to Christ as a slave, the one who determines your worth and value is, is the one who owns you yeah, is, yeah. and the one you belong to. Mm. Um, and of course that's worked out horribly uh, in all of history, of but it doesn't work out horribly when you're a slave to Christ, mm -hmm. because if, if Christ is the one who determines your value, and you belong totally to him as his slave and servant, then he has he has stated that you're you're that you have 
value as an image bearer and as his brother and sister. So mm-hmm. you take this slavery, which implies a belonging to him and a reliance on him to determine your value and worth. And he, res- and he says, oh, you're my brother and my sister. So, so it doesn't mean you're my brother, my sister. Now you don't have to submit to my authority as Jesus. Right. You still are under my authority, uh, but belonging to me, uh, mm-hmm. because you belong to me, you have this value and worth now as one who has worth and value mm-hmm. now submit to my, to my authority, because now you can trust me. Mm-hmm. Now you can trust that with this authority, I'm not going to demean you. I'm not going to push you down. I'm not going to cast you mm-hmm. aside. I'm going to continue walking with you as a brother and sister. And this is where the gospel is sheer absurdity that Jesus has given his very life for his people and that he has that act is this sort of valuation of his people. And it has been his very own life that he has given for his people. And that's just an unimaginable category whereas um before if if the, if it is if we are servants slaves do loss of of jesus christ then he has <laughs> done what's unthinkable mm-hmm. in order to value and rescue us and that's remarkable yeah and, and, I, Another- and I, i'm sorry i just want to make sure i i, I don't we're drawing theoretical connections that that we're not i don't think we're actually playing out in other words that if christ is this church is somehow a gender relationship somehow slavery is the way that relationship ought to take place and i think keith this to your point that only is done right under christ anytime that same relationship is applied anywhere elsewhere it's mm-hmm. always abusive um yeah but that doesn't right. but slavery is, is a particular type of that which it doesn't seem in the scriptures that authority always is is described that way and, I, and one that i i bring up often is the fact that Christ says that when the spirit comes, he will only say what I tell him to say, which is somehow a position of authority. that The spirit will only do those things. But of course, we know that the spirit is also the divine essence of God himself, um, a different person, but certainly in essence. So that authority structure does not diminish in any way the divinity of the Holy Spirit. And, and I think that the inverse then is true, or at least the same principles carried. And I, I would say to brothers and sisters, to be under someone in authority is not a reduction of your value. Um, in fact, scripture plays that very differently than our culture, which I think is where our people are going to wrestle the hardest about this one, mm-hmm. because that's the current or the wind that's hitting us particularly hard that we need to overcorrect against somehow. That's where I think um, fighting for the life of unborn children is one of the greatest pictures we have in the church of lack of power and authority does not equal lack of value and worth. Mm. I mean, we, we, they have no, they have no power uh, and no authority over anyone. And they're completely dependent upon, upon God working Mm. through uh, the body of a mother to grow them. Um, But we say, no, that doesn't, that doesn't determine their value and worth that they, that, that this is, this is a person made in the image of God. And, and we must, protect and defend and that also involves protecting and helping and defending the mother who is who is seeking to to bring that child into the world so like i i think when we do pro-life well it is a beautiful picture of this it is it's starting out from the very beginning of someone's life and saying your value and your worth 
is not dependent upon the power and the influence you may have in your relationships, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because we, because we would, we will fight for you before you're even born into this world. Mm-hmm. And I think this becomes a touch point uh, between these two things that I think what we're trying to do in this podcast is set out as anchor points for us in this discussion. Mm-hmm. This is a touch point between uh, valuing the body and loving the body and, and finding that as gift and the idea that difference in role does not mean difference in value or, or difference if you're out of, uh, if you don't have this power and this agency, like you've said, Keith, with, with uh, an unborn baby, it doesn't determine the value. I think like this is a, this is where these two things kind of meet, isn't it? And, and they touch and, and I, I don't know, I, I think something has become a little clearer for me in this discussion. Hmm. Now, let me ask a, a, a question about the authority of scripture on this, because this is another area I think where we wrestle as Christians and looking at the Bible is to say, okay, we can look at the teachings of Paul here, maybe the teachings, the theology of scripture, but you've got these other really awkward places where it seems like the actors in scripture, even the work of God does not seem to take notice of gender relationships that, that we feel are out of line, even with the Bible's teaching. So I was, I was in Chronicles and coming out of second Kings into first Chronicles, my own reading. And of course, first several chapters of Chronicles are all genealogies, just long, long genealogies, but a couple intriguing pieces, I guess, the more you know about the people in the Old Testament, the clearer that gets, but one of the pieces is, is all the children David has by multiple wives, and he's yet considered to be the great king who are emulating his throne will always endure. His sin comes in certain areas. It doesn't seem to be clearly indicated that he has multiple sexual partners. That doesn't seem to be his primary sin or problem. So, you know, and I think Christians can do this in both ways and say, well, if the Bible doesn't uphold its own theology on gender, then I, I don't I don't respect David because he did those sorts of things. Or on the opposite mm-hmm. side, if the Bible seemed to condone polygamy and, 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 and a man having multiple sexual partners, then that seems to be OK. But we don't seem to accept either one of those. So how, how do we deal with scripture when the conditions it's using, the gendered cultures that it's using, it doesn't seem to correct? And, and, and Keith, you said this, this last Sunday in your sermon that mm-hmm. polygamy always has creates these massive problems. And I think there's a good principle in there. Then again, scripture doesn't seem to make a very big point about it. In fact, mm-hmm. the story about David doesn't have, other than Bathsheba, doesn't have anything to do with this multiple wives and concubines. Mm-hmm. And yet we would say that that's somehow also against the theological teachings of scripture and gender. So how do our people go back and read these texts, which seem to be so out of line with our values, so out of line? with the thing that's so important to us, you know, it's ideas of gender and, and mutual respect. Do we, are we still able to take the scripture seriously, even though it seems to be such a violation of those things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that, that's a hard question, Dan. Thanks for asking it. I'm happy to ask it. Yeah. I don't have to um, <laughs> I, I think I, I just finished listening to y'all's podcast that you did on Wednesday this morning. And I thought uh, on, on Keith's sermon, um, and I thought uh, there was some really helpful discussion on that podcast along these lines um, that however you might work through the implications and your own response to these sort of things, it feels like God is always um, not fixing everything in the moment in which we find it. 
mm. but that that telos has something to do mm. with um with how god's patient somehow the telos of where everything is going mm. is not worked out in every single particular situation right. even though the telos hasn't changed that all of the all of the nuances and all of the truth of the telos aren't brought down to bear in every situation. And I thought Keith's observation um, about his own life uh, was, was really helpful that he's, <laughs> he looks in other situations and he wants all of God's justice to, to come to bear <laughs> on that situation, but he doesn't want that on his own. But I think that's at least the beginning of an answer is to say, well, where you're headed is where you're headed for a reason. It's, it's, it's not where you're at right now, but it's where you're headed. And um, that all of that can't be brought to bear on every single situation. Am I, am I out of line by using the word crabbing here? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Right. <laughs> the, point, yeah. the, the point of the boat sometimes has to be pointed right. away from your target in order to arrive right. at your target. That's yeah. a crab yeah. angling. But. Yeah. I think, I, yeah, I, I mean, I said it earlier this week. and I, Keith, this is where you get is, credit for saying yes, something. Is, great point. It, I want dude. everyone to hear no, I said but, that. But my great point was just like, I didn't, I don't know the answer. Yeah. Uh, except like, <laughs> there's, one, there, there's one thing I do know in that it's, so there, there are two things here. When I, so when I see, so I don't know, you see Judah and Tamar or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so when you see uh, in that particular example, when you see oh, someone mistreated um, and, they're, and, and you want, I want God to step in and say, no, like you are, you are not valuing the life of a human, uh, of a human being. And what I do know is that for the repentant follower of Jesus, that will be judged. And it was judged on Jesus. Like that, that mm -hmm. God brought judgment for all the times that we have treated someone as less than an image bearer of God, that Jesus pays for that. So there is judgment and there's justice. And for people who do it, who aren't followers of Christ, that will be paid for. There, there will be judgment and justice brought upon that. So I have that comfort. Mm -hmm. um, and I can say that's going to happen. What I still struggle with is why isn't there the course correction? And I think that's probably what you're specifically like teasing at, Dan, is yes, we recognize that there will be judgment for all, all the stuff that we read throughout the scriptures. And we say, that's not right. That's not right. doesn't seem like God specifically addresses it. They just move on to chapter 39. Why didn't he address that? So that does get addressed in judgment, uh, either sin that's placed on Jesus or judgment in the end when Jesus returns. But what I really continue to struggle with is why doesn't God provide course correction over and over and over again for his people? Um, and I, d I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. I, I don't want to take that to say that God is disinterested in his people, that God is disinterested in us uh, valuing others. Like mm -hmm. It can't mean that because he sent Jesus and he comes down to us. So I know it doesn't mean that. I the only thing that I can rest on is that God knows just a bit better than I do. And, and I have to trust that hmm. even though it's difficult. I wonder, uh, again, I, I'm not sure that this is a fully baked thought. I'm not even sure I've ever had one of those, but this is something to think about. Um, isn't there a sense in which the church gets to address even these wrongs in history 
in a sense? Isn't the church as the body of Christ in the world, in the way we love each other, in the way that we press forward towards um, the telos, don't we get to address in some sense the injustice that happened to Tamar or these other things um, that you could point to in history? Doesn't the church's life as the body of Christ in the world, in the way in which we strive towards living and leaning and getting closer towards the telos, isn't there a sense in which that puts an onus upon us as the church? You know, we don't go back and we don't fix things for Tamar. I'm not trying to say that, that it's all immaterial now and her pain doesn't really matter. I'm not trying to say that, but that informs and shapes the way in which we live with our sisters in, in the church. And I don't know, it's just an interesting thing to me that the body of, of Christ as the church is still in the world. We, we've, we've not been pulled out of the world, but we're left in the world to work out that price that Jesus paid. And how does our, how, how do we, this cloud of witnesses business, there's something going on in, with that, um, that we hear about in, in, in Hebrews that, I don't know, I'm just, I guess I'm sort of asking the question and, and thinking that there is something to the way in which the church continues to move towards its goal uh, of union and communion with Jesus and Christ-likeness and new creation, that we get to, in some small way, live in light of that. At least we're living in light of that. We're not forgetting that. And that's been given to us, those stories uh, that bother us. I don't know. What do you guys well, no, think? I think that's a, that's a great point. We could, I think there's other terms that get at that. The, the idea that this is the, you know, Pauline eschatology, this is the end times, that the church is the telos of Israel, mm -hmm. that, you know, that was, as you say, Keith, where's the course correction? The course correction is Acts 2, and the course correction is the Holy Spirit coming to the church. And so we can't ultimately take the acts of Israel as the pattern. We take the promises of God as the pattern. And the church now gets to live out the telos, the end result that, that, that Israel was always pointing toward, mm -hmm. and that seems to be mm -hmm. the way Christ looks at the church. So I think maybe it's a different term, but it's the same idea, Luke. I don't know yeah. if, that, if that, if you feel yeah. that. Yeah, no, I do. I feel, I, and I, I feel like if these, I, I don't know why, but let's fixate for a moment on Tamar. If that story was given to us for an example, um, as, as we discover in the New Testament, um, there must be a way in which we're completing that story. Yeah. Um, there, there must be a way that our life in the world does speak directly to that story. I don't know. That's compelling to me. I need more time with it. But I think there's something compelling about that, especially when you think about this sort of tension of the already and the not yet that, yeah, you know, yeah. we, we have time and aspect sort of figured out from our own perspective, but we know that it's not actually how all things uh, come together in, in God's future right. that somehow. That's wrong um, yeah. yeah, exactly. So I, I don't know. That's, that's interesting to me. And I, I mean, maybe we can provide a couple guiding principles out of that just as a, just as a help. Um, to say that, yeah, 
the, the culture's pressure is going to be say justice has to be solved in your life is not accurate. Not that God is not interested, or we ought not try and work towards that. But it seems like Tamar's story does not end. It, it's, it's a story that eternally, and I think this gets to your point, Keith, that if we think we take redemption seriously, mm-hmm. evil and injustice is not the end of any story. It's part of something. And does that mean that we endure injustice? Yes, it may mean that we endure injustice, but God is not finished with that story. That's that's halfway through the book yet. Yeah. Um, and, I, and, and maybe another one, and this is, again, another encouragement, I think, to go back and look at these texts a little differently, maybe, is to say that God, and I, I don't want to say the telos is so important, God doesn't care about Tamar. That, that doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be true. But it is something along the lines of that God's plan is not reducible to the injustice that happens. In other words, mm-hmm. redemption is such that injustice doesn't stop what God is doing. God's plan actually somehow goes through that and he'll redeems all of that into Christ's death and into the coming kingdom in ways that we may not appreciate. And that means maybe the injustice that happens to us is not a halt to God's redeeming story. Maybe that's just, he's going to turn that crazy, ugly nastiness into something beautiful somehow in his way. If we don't believe that, then I, I think we deal with cancer and abuse and these things in very different ways. Well, and I think, you know, there's the fact of the resurrection of Jesus, but there's also the the sort of image and the metaphor of the resurrection of Jesus. And I, I want to be careful to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. If I mention it as metaphor, I'm not saying that it's not it didn't happen. <laughs> I'm saying it actually not allegory physical bodily resurrection. It's not just allegory or metaphor. But I think there's a sense, even within that, that it contains this idea of resurrection, mm-hmm. which presupposes an actual death, an actual injustice. So, so I mean, even the re- it's not as if Christ comes into the world and rescues the world apart from actual injustice and death. Right. It's through that. It is going through a death and then a resurrection. An unjust death. Yeah. And so somehow all of that speaks to as you were pointing out, Dan and, and Keith, the, that it has been actually experienced. Um, but it's also, uh, the allegory is still there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, I, and, that, and this, this, I think, is how we, how we live it out as Christians, is mm-hmm. to, again, I think where, we, where we're not landing the plane quite, we've just put it into a pattern over the runway, I suppose. Yeah, right. Um, but is, is to say that we... we However, we live these things out. We we don't have a final bead on it. Any one of us, um, we we always we always have to course correct in this, and we have to learn to see. And I think this is what Calvin was getting at when we were reading him this past week. Was the most important part of the story is the, is the part that isn't yet written. The most important part of our story is the part that has yet to come, which is really hard for anyone in the temporal world to accept because. I don't know that part yet. I can't see with my eyes. I don't. And this is, I think, what the writer of Hebrews is getting at, that all of our stories as they're told in this point in time only get their meaning by the end that happens. And we just don't have that in our hand. We got it in Revelation. We, have, we, we know what's going to happen, but we don't get to see it in our time. And so for these relationships to happen in our bodies, physically, disease, abuse, genderly in our relationships, however that teases out, um, and a lot of times in very painful ways, both male and female, that ultimate we're saying is that the ultimate guide and value you have is in that ultimate story. And, right. and the anxiety, I think, with our culture has now of saying we've got to solve this 
so that I feel exactly where I want to be in my skin, in my mm -hmm. society, in my gender mm -hmm. creates a lot of these, these navigational disasters, right? Rather than treating them as course corrections, we fixate on the, the cloud and we go, okay, I'm locking in and I'm never going to move. Yeah. And then we just turn circles in the ocean. And I yeah. think that's what we're starting to feel in our own culture right now. Yeah. And, and I think that brings us back to say, you know, some definitive things to offer some definitive thing to, I guess what we're doing is we're reminding each other and our brothers and sisters who are in their struggles that whether it's gender dysphoria, whether it's uh, same-sex attraction, whatever it is, what we're reminding and what we're inviting one another into as well is that the fixed waypoints haven't changed in that God created them male and female, and that these two things can actually be a comfort, even though you feel so off course, there is actually this fixed thing that you can navigate by. And that I think that's a gift that the church has been given yeah. to offer each other and our, our neighbors who maybe I would imagine do feel a little bit like they're doing circles sometimes. And I think that's really what we're saying in all of this is that yeah. there is this fixed point. Now, we're not saying getting there is a cakewalk or, or that there aren't all right. sorts of things that are real and affect, uh, you know, affect our navigation. But there are these there are these things that are given as gift to us and biological sex uh, and and gender relationships gender relationship and and gendered relationships are are those gifts yeah yeah there's probably more to say in fact i want to say as we go on to the next recording that we actually want to get a little more specific this does sound a little theoretical <laughs> yeah. we do intend to partly because we want to yeah. ask how does the pca do this because mm -hmm. the pca does not just do this theoretically we have very practical mm -hmm. guidelines on how how to do this um and I think we might even be able to explore a little more. Does that speak to how we actually relate to one? Because one of the one of the things we're not talking about here, and I'd like to pick up on the next one if we could, is that actually gender distinction is an important way that we actually engage and understand God. I, I when when God is called a father, there is there's things I didn't understand about that until I actually was a father. And there's a there's an intro about a mother and a wife. If you, I, I understand, I would imagine being a wife under a husband teaches you things about what it is to be the church under Christ in ways that a man just has a very difficult time understanding, but that these become really gifts, gifts to, to connect to God in his roles, because all of our roles come from him. So the role of a woman in society and man or sexual, all are the image of God explored. So each of them teach us things. And I think they give us unique ways to interact with God and then share that with the opposite gender, that if we actually get rid of those things, we lose those touch points that God crafted for us. Like you say, we don't look at God through marriage. We don't look at God through gender. We look at gender through God. And in which case those become real contact points. And as, as I understand the PCA has really worked to try to craft those things in line with, not so that it could just maintain tradition, but because I think it really believes that those gendered and sexual realities are really unique content contact points with God as person that if we dilute and confuse, we actually lose those 
those places and those things. So mm. hopefully next time we'll get a chance to, I think that's where we're headed is now we've gotten some of this theory work about gender. We're going to drive into some specifics and answer some questions about where the PCA church goes in this, and maybe even be able to say more specifically how that connects to how we relate as men and women uh, in families and mm -hmm. churches. I know we're going to talk specifically mm -hmm. about those contexts. So mm -hmm. um, unless there's anything else to, to say, gentlemen, I don't want to cut you off. If you've got a lingering thought, we want to get in here. If we're okay to stop there, um, we'll, we'll pick yeah. it up in the next recording with, uh, with that, with that material. So great. Dan, again, thank you for, again. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for being out on a limb with me. Yeah. yeah thanks, and, Dan. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I'm so grateful for um, the context in which we were able to have this conversation mm -hmm. is not just us three, but within the context of our church family yeah. um, that we're having this discussion. And it's, I, I think that's a rich a, a rich gift to us um, as a, a church here on this corner is that we're having these discussions. You hear us fumbling for answers and, <laughs> and not sure exactly where to go on, on some of this stuff, but um, what a gift it is to be in the people of God and, and affirming these fixed points of navigation and seeing each other battered by the tides and wind. And, Anyway, Doing it yeah. together. thanks, Dan. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, gentlemen. Friends, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Cross Reference, a podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. You can learn more about our church and discover additional resources on our website, wheatlandpca.org.